He said, see that guy across the way? I said, yeah. Uh, he pointed at a fellow across the way in the shop. And he said, he can only run that one machine. And that's from 1987. And here it is. He says, that's all he's ever run. That's all he'll ever know how to run. That's all he wants to know how to run. He says, and if this place ever shuts down, he says, he's in trouble. He said, so try and learn as much as you can. Try and grow as much as you can. He says, and if you start getting bored here, he said, find somewhere else to work. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff, and I'm here with my co-host, Lloyd Graff. In today's podcast, we're talking about reinvention. Our guest is Logan McGann. Logan has had several unique careers in the machining world. He and his brother started their own machining company. After that, he became a CNC programmer. Finally, he joined our illustrious ranks, becoming a used machine tool dealer at KD Capital. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graffpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. Logan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate being on, Noah and uh, Lloyd. I'd like to get some background on you. You got interested in machining at a very early age, uh, about seven years old, you said, or, or before that? No, it was about seven or eight. I was really young. Um, my father's... Uh, grandfather was a tool and die maker and raised him in that tutelage. And, um, so, you know, growing up, my father had a little machine shop in the garage and at our house where I grew up. So I saw him, you know, cutting metal, probably really five or six. Um, I remember my father, you know, drilling a uh, different steel plate or, uh, turning different things on the lathe, uh, for whatever machinery he was designing or building. Um, he did a lot of work in, in, you know, metallurgy and, uh, uh, the mining industry. And so he was always working or noodling on something. Mm -hmm. Um, so I had that exposure at a young age. And then you said he came home from a a machine tool show and that was kind of what did it for you? Yeah. I remember being probably seven or eight and he handed me a part that was, uh, uh, you know, had flats on it for a wrench and threads and, uh, you know, of course some cross drilled holes and it was all done in one machine. And he talked about how, you know, this is how parts are made in the future. And this is, you know, uh, really high tech stuff. And he, you know, talked about the exciting, uh, and emerging field of, you know, CNC machinery. 
Mm-hmm. And um, I would have been about seven or eight years old. I was born in 81. So, yeah, it was probably 1988 or 89, I'd say, in in that area. And uh, he handed me that part. And I remember looking at it. It was made in brass. And uh, something inside me, even though I wanted to be a pilot and fly, something inside me resonated with that part and the precision and the accuracy and, and just the craftsmanship in it that I never forgot. And I kind of knew then uh, that that was what I wanted to do and chase. And then uh, by 13, 14, you, you were up and running, huh? I, don't say, I wouldn't say it was up and running by then. Um, I pursued a lot of hobbies along the way. So my father encouraged me with a lot of scrap metal and uh, material to work on and, and you know, obviously ruin because you don't <laughs> – you don't knock it out of the park right out of the gate. So, you know, I did a lot of welding um, as a hobby, really. I was kind of a loner kid um, and didn't really pursue friendships as much as I did uh, my passion for making things in the shop. So uh, welding and making a lot of mistakes, really, and having him correct uh, those mistakes and, and teach me, you know, good practices in the shop. Um, but by the time I was about 13 or 14, I could run a lathe, an engine lathe, um, mm-hmm. and weld uh, a weld that didn't look, you know, like chewing gum that had been slapped down on metal. Did you feel very close to your father? Yeah. Um, he was my best friend. I spent a lot of time with him in the shop. And, uh, um, you know, I'm really fortunate to have a good father that uh, put in a lot of time with me and was patient with me because... Um, you know, being a chip off the old block, uh, there's a lot of friction, especially being Irish. So um, having him work with me and and coach me up in the making of just about anything. And you built, did you build a, a rifle, you told me? Yeah, I did. Um, I worked my way up. I, I remember, you know, picking up a job for uh, some, some mining ladder. I did about a thousand feet of mining ladder when I was 16. And then I ended up meeting a man that uh, sold 50 caliber rifle plan books, uh, and he, you know, it was mail order. But he happened to be here in Phoenix, and um, so I was probably 17, and I went to see him. And by then, you know, we had our mill and our lathe, and um, everything was manual. I didn't know the CNC stuff that I know now. Mm-hmm. I went and met with him, and he um, was very encouraging and sold me a plan book for $125 and I, uh, I went to work and, you know, I probably spent maybe six or $700 of my own money on, you know, the different alloy steels. I remember there being some specialty chromoly steels for the bolt, um, and the breech. And I just went to work and, you know, started working at making those parts. And I, I can't say that I knocked them out of the park the first try. Some parts, it took me four or five or even six times uh, of, you know, cutting it and working at that metal and then scrapping it out till I got it right. Mm-hmm. And um, I probably put about 250 to 300 hours in producing that 50 caliber rifle. And I completed it a little bit before I was 18. So the entire rifle you built yourself? Yeah, entire rifle, except for the scope, you know, but... Yeah, the entire rifle I built uh, from scratch. Um, it incorporated machine parts as well as some TIG welding. Um, it was a great project and uh, it was something I'm really proud of. And my father and I actually went out to the desert on my, around my 18th birthday and uh, test fired that rifle um, 
you know, with some sandbags in a safe fashion behind my Jeep. And yeah, we put three rounds through it and it fired and functioned. And, um, do you still have it? I still have it. Yeah, I still have it. It's kind of in pieces cause I was going to recode it. Uh, they've got some really neat paints now that are out that are ceramic, but yeah, that's, I still have it. Uh, it's still something that's uh, kind of a treasured heirloom really. Interesting. So then you, you got into the business, huh? Yeah. My, my brother and I, my older brother and I, um, plunged in with both feet. My brother is a fantastic salesman and he had caught wind of some products, uh, in the, you know, uh, aftermarket racing scene. Um, and we started making different products and selling them. Somebody would ask my brother, Hey, can your brother make these parts for us? We'd like to, you know, we'd like to buy some, but they're really expensive. And so we'd make them for 30 or 40% less. And, uh, and sell them and you know we started with maybe 15 parts did the resell aspect 30 to 40 percent less how did you swing that yeah so basically because we were small and nimble and agile and we had uh, no overhead um relatively i mean we owned the machinery that we had because it was it was in the family and uh um, I'd say just through our you know aggressive nature um, and then also buying materials that were uh you know, at the recycle or scrap yard, mm-hmm. we just save money and could outsell our competition. And so, you know, 15 parts turned into a hundred and then a hundred parts, you know, the next order was 200. And next thing you know, we're needing a CNC machine. And so we bought our first uh, CNC mill, uh, which was uh, just a, a three axis retrofit type Bridgeport mill um, that allowed us to make a more repeatable uh, product. And, um, we had that for about a year and started really selling more product and realized we're going to have to get a full on, you know, machining center. Hmm. So at the time I'd gone through a traditional trade school for manual equipment, but the CNC side of things was still new to us. So, uh, we plunged in, um, just head first into that market and bought a 1997 Haas, uh, VF4. Uh, with a 10,000 RPM spindle, and that was a game changer for us in really producing product and producing a lot of it and a lot of different varieties um, of what our market was demanding. So what year was that? Was the was the Haas used or new? Or? The Haas was used, yeah. It was actually um, the guy that sold us the retrofit mill, brand new. Um, he said, hey, I know this shop. He was a machine tool dealer and local uh, here in the Phoenix area. And he said, I know this shop that's selling a, a machine that's, you know, a few years old. Um, are you guys have interest? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. He says, okay, I just want a couple thousand dollar finders fee and I'll plug you right into the guy. And that was that. And the guy ended up being a really, um, you know, really cool owner, uh, machine shop owner that been in the business for 15 years, gave me some coaching and, uh, was available, uh, for some questions even was really helpful. So you were mostly self-taught, and then he just uh, gave you a little guidance? Yeah, self-taught. So uh, the software, you know, between Mastercam, um, dealing with those folks, and then uh, Peter Schmid, uh, his book called CNC Programming, um, I attribute a lot to my, a lot of my personal success to the, that book. Do you think trade schools are overrated, or is this stuff really the only, the only way to learn it is to... Uh, teach yourself in the end because it's so hands-on 
Yes and no. Yes and no. So there's there's certain aspects of the business that of making a good part soundly that you're not going to get to uh, the same level as quick as if you don't go and find a good teacher. Um, but at the same time, learning software, uh, learning software is is all about saddle time, right? In in the chair, in front of the computer, making mistakes in you know that digital world. So you have to put in your time and that's really where, you know, the difference between a really great program or a really great tooling engineer or, or manufacturing engineer is, is separated from, you know, the guys that went to the trade school and just kind of checked the box for a job as opposed to the guys that really put in the flight time with the software because they are really, you know, critical in how they create a process or how they approach a problem to make a part that is, you know, saleable and repeatable. Right. So you really, I mean, I, for instance, with video editing, which I have experience with, you know, the class, they can give you some assignments and they can show you a few things. But in the end, you're really only going to get good uh, if you just go off by yourself and trial and error and figure it out. At some point in time, you got to put the cutter to the metal and see how everything's going to behave. And, you know, carbide being the way it is, um, it's, it's a nodular matrix material. Um, it's basically microscopically a lot of spheres and, uh, it cuts and holds an edge and stays sharp really well. But what it doesn't like is vibration. The minute something goes out of harmonic, it basically, you know, blows up and shatters like a piece of glass. Hmm. And said there's a there's a finite recipe you know you have to dial in the speeds and feeds and have everything dialed in and that comes with you know experience ten thousand hours yes sir and a lot of scrap <laughs> <laughs> a lot of scrap so then what happened uh with the company you know we grew that up um over a 10-year period of time it was a family business at one point in time we were shipping 60 different products and assemblies through three different websites and doing the manufacturing thing um you know we had a horizontal we had some verticals we had some lathes and um you know we were building our company based on the toy market which was you know aftermarket products for utvs and atvs and um some of the hot rod stuff and uh, basically, you know, in 08, 09, that uh, funny money, well, really 2010, the funny money, I, as I call it, um, with the, uh, you know, adjustable uh, interest mortgages or the home equity line of credits that were being passed out by the banks, uh, people were living on those and buying things that they probably had no business buying. But that was what we were building and basing our business on and growing on. What, what was the actual product you were selling? So we had billet products, billet accessories for uh, UTVs, you know, the Rhinos, the Razors, the Rangers, um, those off-road vehicles uh, that are widely popular uh, Uh. all around the country. Utility vehicles, right? Um, And then we were also doing quad products. uh, So we had, you know, front bumpers, back bumpers. uh, So you're saying people were buying those cars and they couldn't afford the cars? I think so. Yeah, I think they were buying a lot of toys. Um, See, when you said toys, I didn't know what you meant by toys. I was thinking of like Toys R Us versus... You're talking about adult toys. Adult toys, yeah. And not the, uh, you know, basically the ones that are, you know, for off-road purposes, uh, racing, motorcycles. uh, You know, we definitely saw that in the Harley market, right? There was uh, um, some of the big Harley builders that made custom 
uh, Harleys that were really grandiose in their design through that time period. Um, you know, guys I looked up to like Jesse James and, uh, you know, West Coast Choppers and some of the other fabricators that were widely popular, uh, like Orange, you know, the Orange, Orange uh, County Choppers in, in the Northeast. So, um, you know, that was uh, people were buying those items, I believe, on, you know, uh, on interest loans and and, uh, and making moves financially that probably weren't sound. So we were at the tail end of that. Um, and uh, so you know, ultimately a business to us was a vehicle to make money. And, you know, when you're not making money at, uh, at something like that, it, it starts to uh, not be any fun anymore. Mm-hmm. And so we decided to tube that in around 2010. So what'd you do after that, after you closed your business? Yeah, I, I had to reinvent myself. Um, I'd say being in business, you learn to reinvent yourself a lot. Um, and so I went out to market as a programmer uh, in the aerospace field, and I hired on with a um, a company that uh, was here local to me in in uh, the Phoenix area that uh, did specialty tooling um, and uh, a lot of uh, high end aerospace products. And so it was there that I actually got exposed to an AS ninety one hundred manufacturing environment and an ISO nine thousand standard. Um, which was a game changer for me. I, I felt like I was learning nonstop. And again, you know, I had great teachers and coaches there, um, really good management. And I uh, worked for uh, them for a period of time, um, learning how to do MOTs, uh, write uh, basically the manufacturing plan for the floor, uh, as well as create you know, programs in GNM code uh, using the Mastercam software, which is what I've become fluent in. And, um, you know, I got a opportunity to make some fantastic art uh, that was going to go on, you know, aircraft like the Apache helicopter hmm. and maybe even go into space for ATK, ATK orbital science. Um, it was pretty neat projects to be a part of, really. And I loved it. I felt at home. Interesting. Why did you uh, why did you get out of that racket? You know, I met a guy there and he was an older fella. And he told me something profound that I'll never forget. He said to me, he says, son, he says, you're a good guy. You're really sharp. He says, he told me, he said, don't get complacent. Don't get comfortable. He says, always push the limits, always push to grow. He says, green and growing or dead and dying. And I really took that to the heart. He was a really wise old man. And, uh, he said, you know, you see that guy over there and he points across the shop floor. Uh, this guy was the guy's name was Gary Marks. He was really, really a very uh, wise guy um, and just kind of ahead of his time. Just a true genius, uh, especially a tool making. He could make anything and uh, had made everything um, in his career. And um, he, uh, he said, see that guy across the way? I said, yeah. Uh, he pointed at a fellow across the way in the shop and. He said he can only run that one machine, and that's from 1987. And Ugh. here it is. He says that's all he's ever run. That's all he'll ever know how to run. That's all he wants to know how to run. He says, and if this place ever shuts down, he says he's in trouble. He said, so try and learn as much as you can. Try and grow as much as you can. He says, and if you start getting bored here, he said, find somewhere else to work. And uh, I'd say probably three weeks later, uh, another aerospace shop gave me a call and uh, had heard that I was a decent programmer and offered me a job uh, programming at their facility for a little bump in pay. 
and I was going to get a play with, you know, uh, point and shoot five axis machining and other emerging technologies that this shop just wasn't geared towards. They weren't going to have. And so it was really more of a pursuit for educational, you know, growth and, um, that I took that position and that, uh, place was absolutely astounding. It was a, again, a game changer. AS9100 environment continued to grow and learn. What um, company was it? That was Casavant. Yeah. Casavant, Joe Casavant Jr. Um, was who offered me the position there. And, uh, the general manager there, I'll never forget him. He's still a close friend is, uh, Mark Bentager. And they, they still, uh, as far as I know, are number one vendor for Honeywell every year. Um, they run a great program, a great ship, um, and the people there are just really talented and skillful individuals. Very, very, very smart people there. Okay, and and so now uh, you're a dealer like us. How did you get there? You know, um, again, process evolution and growing. Um, I uh, along the way through the uh, recessions, I was attracted to the auction racket and. Um, being self-employed at the time, I would buy and sell machinery or, or fourth axis, you know, units or different tooling. Um, I'd try and buy low and sell high. And that was, uh, my extra money on the side to either, you know, pay for whatever things that my life needed. And so I kind of learned to hustle, uh, in the trenches for buying equipment and maybe reselling it. And, uh, I always kind of held that close to my heart as far as something I enjoyed doing. And, uh, so, you know, as I worked and grew in the trade, I'd save money and, uh, you know, buy low, sell high. Uh, sometimes I'd win some, sometimes I wouldn't. And, um, I just kind of grew my little nest egg or my money, if you will. And, uh, just was doing that on the side and I had worked my way up to, um, you know, manufacturing management position up in Oregon and I was buying equipment and selling it on the side. And, you know, I started talking with my wife. I said, you know, I think I could do this full time. And, uh, at the same time I was having, you know, off regular conversations cause I used to be a customer here with, um, you know, Michael Trieger over here at Katie capital. And, um, I had bought some machines and, and, uh, I felt like I'm going to share this opportunity over with, uh, with the guys at Katie and see if they have interest in, sh- in splitting this deal. And was there something else that, you know, that made you make this dramatic shift in your life? Yeah. So basically I had seen some of the sales guys come and go in the shops and I had always said to myself, you know, when I get kind of bored with, um, when I get bored with the manufacturing side of stuff, cause it kind of can be stressful. It can be really strenuous. Uh, I wanted to pursue something in sales. And so, you know, timing was perfect. I got a, a job opportunity, uh, over here with KD and, um, signed on a board three years ago and have been pursuing this side of things um, rather than the engineering side of stuff. And it's been a really good fit. Yeah, we we were talking um, the other day. You call it sales, but we, we call it treasure hunting. And I do like that term. I think it's fitting. Uh, you know, I'll find a lot of uh, ugly lizard machines out there in the world that really are of no value and need to rest in peace in the scrapyard. <laughs> and then there's these opportunities and situations where somebody's truly getting rid of something exceptional, um, whether it's a five axis mill or, you know, a, a very exceptional, uh, mill turn lathe. Um, 
uh, or even a you know multi spindle Swiss, and they you know are looking to sell it for a reasonable number, and um, we can put together a situation where a buyer can save a large amount of money buying a used piece of machinery, and you know we help facilitate that. We help some. Um, fantastic stuff happen in manufacturing in this business and I'm very passionate about manufacturing so it just it's a very very neat part of the business to be a part of do you miss more the the uh, nuts and bolts or do you feel like you get enough of a fix you know with where I'm at life wise um, I don't um, you know I had a head trauma back in 13 and that kind of affected my ability to uh, do the same nutty engineering stuff I was doing. Um, uh, I do miss my men. I do miss the men I managed. I do miss the men I worked with. Uh, I feel like they taught me more lessons in life. I'd say some of their stories are just very memorable. Um, you know, I worked with men that were veterans from Vietnam uh, era warfare uh, situations as well as, well as Iraq uh, one uh, as far as conflicts go. Um, I've worked with men that and, and managed men that were, you know, uh, guys on boats in the Coast Guard and um, just other neat things that, uh, you know, and we would share stories. And so being in that trade environment and, and being in that honest, real, raw situation where there's not a lot of time for mincing of words because um, we're, you know, splitting hairs down to the New York minute. Mm-hmm. I, I do miss that part of it. I miss uh uh, I miss my coworkers uh, that I'd, I'd found to really, you know, treasure and enjoy working with on a daily basis. And I, I don't know the story of your concussion, and uh, we can edit it out, but I'd like to hear about it. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. It was, uh, you know, I didn't talk about it for a long time because it's one of those goofy things where you know something's not right, and you don't know how to explain it, and it, and that's the best way I can tr- sum it up. Um, but yeah, I was on the way to work. Um, I was involved uh, as a lead guy in a medical prototype facility at the time um, for for Course Tech. Uh, they were developing some spinal fusion tech, and I was uh, doing a lot of programming on the five-axis mills there. And um, it was quite a time, quite a life-changing time, really. A very intense situation. Um, the parts we were turning around and you know, 10 to 14 days. And so I was doing that. And then I was also doing programming gigs on the side because, uh, I don't know, it was something I really liked doing. And I chased uh, the opportunities as they came, um, kind of fueling that entrepreneurial fire within, so to speak. So um, I remember getting home at about 1030 the night before my accident and going to bed around 11. And then I woke up at 4.30 or 5 to head into work to get the mills going and get things rocking because we had a you know, serious timeline to hit. And um, I was uh, parked, uh, stopped on the expressway or the, the freeway. And um, there was a car that, uh, for some reason, you know, I had the sixth sense to look in my mirror. I look up and there's a Jeep uh, with the lady's hair kind of covering her face and her phone like this. And her, you know, if you can see my hand, yeah, I think I'm doing it right. And she's looking at that and not looking at the road. And she was flying at me at about 60 miles an hour. Wow. And so I had done a lot of martial arts in my life growing up. And uh, I learned how to take falls uh, in the Japanese style of Aikido that I took. Uh And a great master and great teacher in that. I did that for about six or seven years. So I grabbed the steering wheel and relaxed and went, and kind of relaxed down, ready to take the hit. Um, which I would have been fine, right? Uh, relatively. 
But then uh, my eye in an instant caught, uh, there was a Honda Odyssey van in front of me. Um, and there were two little girls that had unclipped themselves from the car seats. And um, they were turned around facing at me, waving through the window, right up against the back glass. And it was almost like I saw a flash forward. I don't know how to describe it, but I knew that the car was going to hit me and I was going to hit that hit that van. And these little girls heads were going to go into the glass. Oh, my and God. Wow. That was, oh. Yeah. And so in an instant. And, you know, they always talk about people talk about these situations where you have time slow down. But, well, whatever it was, in an instant, I knew that that was what was going to happen. And, you know, I hate to say it like this, but I heard a voice in my head and it was my own voice. And it said, turn the damn car. And so <laughs> I turned the wheel as fast as I could in in uh, in my car. And I was driving one of those uh, diesel Mercedes, uh, you know, the the, uh, the 1980s style that are built like a brick tank. Um, and, uh, all of a sudden I got plowed into from the back, um, and my car swerves like that. And I barely miss, I can remember seeing in the mirror, um, as my head was approaching the glass, my rear bumper missing the, uh, missing the rear bumper of that van and me fishtailing back and forth. And that, in that turn, in that hit, um, the back part of my head right here hit the back of the glass or hit the side glass. And, um, I remember having everything just flash and, um, I may have been unconscious. I don't really remember. Um, I know I dialed 911 whenever I came to, um, and my thumbs weren't working right. And I remember hitting send. And when the 911 operator answered, she said, you know, what's your emergency? I said, I've been in an accident. I could say that. And she said, well, where are you? And I truly knew that's when I knew something was wrong. Whoa. I remember where I was. I said, I don't know. Uh-huh. And so they sent someone out. And I'm sure yelled. that happens to them all the time. Yeah, probably. But for me, it was a new thing. So that was the beginning of uh, interesting recovery. You know, I will sum it up in this. I've got a friend who is, um, he was actually, a, he's, a, he's a childhood friend. His name's Ducey Latouille, played for the Cardinals here and had the privilege to, you know, be Kurt Warner's protector. He's wow. he, yeah, he jokingly calls him, you know, it, Kurt Warner, he says, he was my baby. I, everywhere he went, I went and I protected him and I kept him safe. And um, so he went to the Super Bowl when the Cardinals had the privilege to attend that venue. And uh, the long and the short of it is, is I, I broke bread with him recently and he said, you know, he said, some of the challenges I have with, you know, my body being kind of worn out and so forth. He says, uh, he says, they're almost a blessing. And I said, yeah, why is that? He said, well, because he says, it's changed my perspective. He says, the, the, he says, you know, I see, I see the people that suffer around me. He says, I see, you know, uh, life in a different light. And I think that, uh, certain experiences we have in life, um, change our, our perspective and sometimes in a very positive way. So I actually look at it as, as a, uh, um, great eye opening experience to have my, you know, thoughts, uh, yeah, cause I did have a serious concussion to have my thoughts, uh, broken and my photographic mind kind of shattered and fractured and then having to sort through those things over the past five years, it's been, uh, neat to revisit old memories as they come. And then you, you said, uh, you're thinking one day you'd like to have a trade school. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, 
it's all about giving back, right? Um, my teacher in trade school when I was doing the manual stuff, his name was Ronald Roth, rest his soul. Um, he was a fantastic man. He did not need to put in the time, um, you know, because he was he was well off. Didn't need to put in the time for uh, the the college's trade program that I was going to. Um, but he did it, and he did it with the intent because he communicated it often to, you know, pass on the knowledge he's gained to help the, you know, future uh, generation of those who can make things that no one else can. And um, so, you know, it's kind of my ha- aspiration and hope to pass on the knowledge I've gained um, to the rising generation that has a desire to make things, that has a desire to add value. Um, you know, I was on a flight back from Houston, um, probably three or four months ago, maybe six months ago. And I ended up hitting the lottery sitting next to a high up at Peterbilt truck. And he says, do you know how many, uh, diesel technicians I could hire right now? If I could actually find people that really wanted to work and really wanted to put in time, the time that it takes to get good. I said, I don't know how many, he says 200 nationwide. And I said, oh, wow. And he says, and we, we pay those guys a, a very high salary. He says, I'm talking 90 to 120 grand um, a year after they've been in it for a few years. And, you know, my number one takeaway was that from that was there's still some incredibly valuable jobs, uh, whether it's as technician and CNC, you know, machine tools that there's a huge need for. Um, CNC programmers, uh, even operators that can just, you know, run and manage and multitask two or three machines. Um, there's a lot of opportunity in manufacturing and we are on an upswing, um, in the market. So the time couldn't be better to enter, you know, this exciting field that is rapidly changing with, you know, printed metals, with, uh, printed technology for, for how we produce parts, um, as well as the old methods that are, you know, being lost to some of the guys that are, you know, the baby boomers that are retiring now and, you know, dying with their trade secrets, if you will. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Hey, thanks for interfacing with me and let me share some stories and uh, putting up with my long windedness. Thanks a lot, Logan. Take it easy. Appreciate you guys. Thank you. Hey, everybody. First, we just want to thank you for listening to the podcast. It boosts our egos, and of course, your ears are the reason we do this. But it would be great if you could subscribe and leave a review, as it'll help other people discover it. Talk to you soon.